0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbas of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: So glad you are here for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. And we're brought to you by Tommy John Underwear. Shop Memorial Day sale at TommyJohn.com and get up to 30% off site-wide with the code Martini. That's Martini for up to 30% off site-wide. Jim, you are back indoors today after spending yesterday in your yard doing the show, showing your tremendous dedication to this podcast. We'll find out if the uh, home repair forces us to uh, call an audible mid-show today, but uh, how does it feel to be in controlled climate again?
0: Well, I I see him. He's coming in with dynamite, Greg. I think that's a bad (laughs) sign. It's, It's supposed to be a routine work on our upstairs bathroom. And uh is it, is it a bad sign if he's wearing a hazmat suit? Anyway,
1: <laughs> There's dynamite involved. This could be the worst uh, bathroom explosion since Lethal Weapon 2, but uh, I, don't, uh, <laughs> I don't know the exact details of what you're working with there, but uh, you might have bigger problems in the podcast if that's the case. All right. Anyway, uh, let's go to our good martini now, Jim. And it uh, turns out that having three branches of government is a good thing. Uh, especially when one branch decides that it's going to overstep its bounds. And so we're seeing a lot of frustration now. Do you open now? Do you open later? Do you want to kill grandma? Do you want to kill freedom? I mean, it's, it's a very nice, genuine, uh, not hyperbolic debate at all. Mm-hmm. And so in certain states, uh, governors have definitely gone with the, oh, we're locking down. It saves just one life. It's all worth it, right? Right. Well, a couple of courts have now told these governors, you know, you can't do this indefinitely without the support of the legislature. Well, uh, Wisconsin and Oregon are the two states here. Wisconsin Democratic Governor Tony Evers said Monday he will not pursue new statewide coronavirus restrictions after the state Supreme Court struck down his previous ones last week. The administration switched gears and withdrew its statement of scope for new COVID-19 regulations after state Republicans, which control the legislature, vocally rejected the plan. Wisconsin's restrictions will now fall to local governments without a statewide approach. That's according to The Hill. And then uh, your colleague, Mary McArdle, over in National Review, talking about a decision, a more limited decision in Oregon. Uh, A county judge on Monday ruled against restrictions put in place by Oregon Governor Kate Brown to stem the spread of coronavirus, declaring them null and void because her emergency order has expired. Baker County Circuit Judge Matthew Shirtcliffe granted a preliminary injunction to 10 churches who had sued the governor over the restrictions, which prevented them from gathering for religious services. The judge's uh, ruling essentially saying, hey, you put restrictions where people can still go to the store and do other things. So... As long as these churches are doing those things, don't see why they should be in a more restrictive category. So uh, therefore, the decision is against the governor. So Jim, we'll see what happens uh, place to place. But we knew these fights would eventually come to a head. And uh, in a couple of key spots here, freedom wins.
0: Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm glad to see that the judges are not ipso facto saying these rules are wrong. They are saying that you need to get the legislature to buy in after a certain period of time. Um, it it almost reminds me of the War Powers Act, right? The idea that the the head of the executive branch sometimes gets confronted with a crisis and they have to make decisions uh, with sweeping implications in order to respond to that crisis. And there isn't always time to get together the legislature and work it all out and do it through the traditional legislative process. The head of the executive branch needs to take action in a crisis. But A crisis kind of implicit in it is the idea is that this is something that happens and then it stops happening. This is one of the reasons I was so irritated by the term shelter in place being used for quarantines because, look, that's what you hear if there's a school shooter or a tornado or something like that. You don't have a situation where you're expected to shelter in place for months and months on end. And if these restrictions were reasonable, well, then I'd like to think that you would generally get legislators on board with it. Uh, This forces the executive branch to say to the legislature, look, we know these restrictions aren't popular, but we're convinced that this is what has to be done in order to protect lives. Here is our data. Here is how we drew this conclusion. This is what the doctors and public health experts are telling us. And it seems to me, if it's a very compelling case, well, then you're going to see legislators say, uh, okay, yeah, all right, that, we're, that makes sense to us, we'll go ahead with this. Or they may not. And in a whole bunch of these states, we have seen legislatures, usually on the Republican side, but not exclusively, saying, look, we, we know you want to protect lives, but you've also effectively shut down you know, the, either the entire or large swaths of the state's economy. People need to get back to work. People need to start earning money again. They need to put food on the table for their families. These are not you know, concerns you can just hand wave away. And we saw um, it's interesting you saw these examples in Wisconsin and in Oregon. I think Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, has been the most uh, outspoken person for this, but even she backtracked a little bit on this. Um, but she had been the one who had been saying, like you know, to the protesters, "Hey, the longer you do this, the longer this is going to go on." Uh, you know, certainly a tone that suggested the lockdowns and shutdowns and quarantines were punitive, uh, not merely a matter of public health. So, uh, thanks to these courts for for you know looking at this clearly. I, I think if you want to make a big sweeping change that affects everybody's lives, governors. You have to make at least make at least make the effort to persuade members of your legislative branch. And if you can't persuade them, then it probably means there's something wrong with either your argument or maybe the data upon which you're making you're basing the decision.
1: Exactly right. Involve the legislature as well. That was a big the fight still going on in Michigan. And uh... First Amendment and all the other amendments still apply, as far as I know, during times like this, Jim. So it's uh, good to see some courts recognizing that as well. Well, there's been a lot of uh, personal habit changes during the uh, coronavirus and uh, people staying at home during the the quarantine and so forth. And we mentioned early on, Jim, I can't remember if it was Walmart or, or somebody else or just a general survey showing that online orders of shirts were skyrocketing, but not pants. And so people chalked it up to, uh, well, people are in Zoom meetings now and, you know, they don't need to uh, show up in pants to those meetings necessarily. I think there was a reporter on Good Morning America who even did a report and got caught (laughs) not having pants on. But, uh, you know, if you're going to go that route, and I guess you can now that you're working from home, or at least many people are, you want to be as comfortable as possible. And that's where Tommy John comes in because, you know, working from home used to be the fantasy of every professional and turns out that it's... Really not that comfortable unless you're wearing Tommy John. All that's sitting down, standing up, answering the door, answering emails, picking up kids' toys, or putting down the dog's bowl. It takes its toll on your layers. Thankfully, Tommy John knows life has its ups and downs, so they've improved their men's underwear, making it more resilient to wear and tear. It's now two times more durable. It's still super soft and breathable, but now even more reliable and comfortable. And right now, when you shop the Tommy John Memorial Day sale, you can get up to 30% off site-wide. Treat yourself
0: and upgrade to a few pairs of Tommy John underwear in the softest, most breathable fabrics you have ever worn. Tommy John obsesses over every little detail and stitch by using proprietary fabrics that perform like nothing you have ever worn before. All of Tommy John's loungewear and leggings are built for next-level comfort. Whether you're in the hunt for lounge pants, sleep shorts, or lazing around joggers, Tommy John has you covered and their underwear even comes with a no wedgie guarantee. Greg, high on our list of words I never thought I would say on this (laughs) podcast are the words no wedgie guarantee. But they've eliminated visible panty lines for women, and their quick draw fly has been proven to save men. You're not gonna believe this, gentlemen. More than 217, quote, unfurling minutes per year. Have you ever thought about how much of your year is spent unfurling? Tommy John is so confident in their underwear that if you don't love your first pair, you can get a full refund with their best pair you'll ever wear or it's free
1: guarantee. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. Yes, shop the Memorial Day sale at TommyJohn.com and get up to 30% off site-wide with the code Martini. That's Martini for up to 30% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com. See the site again, TommyJohn.com for details. All right, Jim, let's move on to our bad martini now. And this all unfolded yesterday. First of all, Trump at the coronavirus briefing, dropping this little bombshell on the White House press court.
0: But I get a lot of tremendously positive news on the hydroxy. And I say, hey, you know the expression I've used, John? What do you have to lose? OK, what do you have to lose? Every
1: so I, take have been, medicine? I have
0: been every taking it for
1: about, a, weekend, a, week for about a, a week and a half. Every day. At some point
0: every day. I take a pill every day. Uh, at some point, I'll stop. What I'd like to do is I'd like to have the cure and or the vaccine, and
1: that'll happen, I think, very soon. Trump, of course, has been touting hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment for this. There's some anecdotal evidence that it certainly has helped some, including that one legislator from Michigan, but but others have said so as well, including some doctors. But the larger clinical studies have either been inconclusive or even suggested that in in a lot of cases it's it's a detriment because there are some serious side effects. It does, as you've mentioned before, suppress uh, your immune system because it's normally used to treat things like lupus and malaria. Uh, And so it's definitely not right in every case with somebody with coronavirus. So nonetheless, the president says he's taking it. And uh, that would be enough fodder for cable news for several hours on end. But then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, talking to CNN's Anderson Cooper, decides to drop in this little nugget. He's our president, and I would rather he not be taking something that has not been approved uh, by the scientist, especially in his age group and in his, shall we say, weight group. What is morbidly obese, they say. Morbidly obese. I'm sure, Jim, that that will not go unanswered on Twitter or anywhere else from President Trump, but we'll see exactly how he chooses to respond. But uh, Uh, As soon as he said it, the the different crazy manifestations of this were were destined to come in, but between him actually taking it when he hasn't tested positive to uh, the reaction, uh, a lot of badness here. You know,
0: Greg, for starters, I don't want Nancy Pelosi making fun of anybody else's appearance, Um, considering how every bit of news seems to leave a shocked and surprised look on her face. Um, So... This, this is an extraordinarily frustrating development. I, I wrote about hydrochloroquine earlier this month. Once you know what the medicine, what, what the drug does, and, and, and how it works, you can understand how it would be very effective for some patients and not for others, most primarily uh, those who are in a quote cytokine storm. Uh, it's when your body's immune system kind of kicks into overdrive and it starts attacking the healthy cells in addition to the uh, bad, you know, in, invading uh, virus or bacteria that it's trying to get rid of. Um, and this is what's at the heart of lupus and malaria and a bunch of these other, uh, you know, diseases. And this is what can happen: your your body gets the coronavirus; it recognizes something is wrong. And and one doctor put it at about fifteen percent of patients. They go into this this hyperactive state, the cytokine cytokine storm, and it starts damaging. So the whole time of you know, oh, Trump says it's a, uh, it works. You know, he must say it's a wonder drug, and the people say, oh no, this is, he, Trump's a quack. Trump doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, it all depends on the patient and it all depends on the condition of the patient and it's going to work for some set of circumstances and not for others. Trump says this. Uh, Trump says that he does not have coronavirus and that he's taking it as a preventative measure. This is not what anybody's been studying it for. There's been some argument that maybe if you take it in combination with zinc, it helps the body process the zinc faster and generally improves the immune system. Uh, In today's Morning Jolt, I listed a bunch of clinical studies that are all applying this for, for using hydrochloroquine with zinc, but all as a form of treatment, not really as a preventative one. This is not something you wanna leave um, a big a big bowl of it on your desk and people pop them like M&Ms or something. This is not you know a completely harmless drug. And this this president just blurts it out, says, oh yeah, I'm taking this. And then the next problem is that uh, uh, the, the, there's a letter from Sean Conley, the physician to the president and It sounds like it's supporting the president, but if you read very carefully, the physician to the president never actually says, one, I prescribe this to the president. Two, the president is taking this drug. Um, The only, is just a vague reference to, quote, we concluded the potential benefit of the treatment outweighed the relative risks. Um, That sounds like a doctor who hastily had to scramble to issue a statement that supported, that appeared to support the president, uh, but did not actually want to say that. I think many people would kind of question the, Uh, whether the White House should be, you know, giving medicine to the president based on his recommendations instead of the other way around. This is extraordinarily frustrating because for a long time, Greg, you and I were saying the argument that Trump had told anybody to go out and, you know, start licking your fish tank cleaner or something like that (laughs) was ridiculous. But now he's really saying, oh, I'm taking hydrochloroquine just as preventative, right? When you say that, everybody in America who's worried about getting the coronavirus is going to say, hmm, maybe I should. Actually, I should say most people won't. Most people have the good sense to recognize that they should not take prescription medication without the recommendation of their doctor. And it's probably not a good idea to badger your doctor into giving you medication you heard about on the news or you saw a commercial for or something like that. Trust your doctor. so possibility one is the president is taking it, which feels like a big risk with his health. The second possibility is the president is not actually taking it. And he just blurted this out yesterday because he wanted to win his argument about how great hydrochloroquine is. Um, an extraordinarily frustrating development. And of course, we have a burning fire and you know Nancy Pelosi has to come along and pour gasoline on top of it and play to the MSNBC crowd and all that kind of stuff. It is an extraordinarily frustrating development that distracts us from much bigger issues in the continuing fight against the coronavirus.
1: The hydroxychloroquine fight between Trump and the media is one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen with both of them absolutely committed to proving that, uh, you know, that Trump is right on his side and that Trump is wrong on the media's side. So people are actually seeming to be cheering studies that show that it doesn't work. And uh, Trump will will, uh, gravitate to anything that suggests that it does. But uh,
0: Greg, do you think the media spends so much time arguing about hydroxychloroquine because remdesivir is harder to pronounce?
1: (laughs) I don't think Trump has said anything nice about remdesivir, so I think they... I, you know, like the amount of time we spend
0: arguing about particular uh, medicines is directly proportional to what the president has said about them, and that's that if you want everybody to get the best possible information, that's a really, really
1: frustrating trend in our media. You said it's Dr. Sean Connolly, not Sean Connery, right? Correct. Why do you want to take this drug? This is ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, To our crazy martini now, Jim, and uh, of course, Joe Biden is still in his basement. And uh, the Tara Reid situation uh, was ignored by the media for a long time. Then it uh, got to the point where he was actually asked some questions about it once. And uh, now we've uh, moved back to coronavirus and other stories. But uh, the shifting on the left when it comes to Believe Women or Believe All Women or Me Too is still uh, an amazing thing to behold. Uh, And the latest example of this is an opinion piece in the New York Times. Uh, The woman's name is Susan Faludi, I think is how you say that, F-A-L-U-D-I. And uh, here is her deconstruction of where the Democrats supposedly were uh, with the Kavanaugh thing and and now to this day. Uh, She says, spend some mind-numbing hours tracking the origins of quote-unquote believe all women on social media sites and news databases as I did, and you'll discover how language like a virus can mutate overnight. All of a sudden, yesterday's quotes suffer the insertion of some foreign DNA that makes them easy to weaponize. In this case, that foreign intrusion is a word. All. In my online searches, I encountered some feminists who seemed genuinely to, to subscribe to the phrase, but overwhelmingly, the Twitterati deploying the phrase were conservatives wielding it as a whip. Why? Because the right knows what Me Too activists do well to keep in mind peril lies in purity. If the pluralism of the women's movement can be reduced to rigid boilerplate in the public mind, then the future of Me Too will have more to lose from a single untruthful woman whom it's sworn to defend than from boatloads of predatory men. This is why Believe All Women is not an amplification of Believe Women, but it's negation. So Jim, uh, they then, of course, on hot air, went and found uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Hillary Clinton <laughs> with the tweets back in the Kavanaugh era of explaining how all women need to be heard and believed and so forth. So what do you make of uh, this one allegation from Tara Reid dismantling uh, what seemed to be an unstoppable force a couple of years ago? You know, I'm looking, Greg, right now at a GoFundMe
0: fundraiser entitled, We Believe All the Women That Had Raised $48,813 Saying It Was Going to Raise Money uh, for Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, right? you you, you know, Google it, it you know is, is, will let you know plenty of examples of people who said believe all the believe all women, and the number of people, you know a surprising number of people are saying well when we said believe women we didn't mean believe all women even though there were some who were using that explicit phrase. The idea of believe women there there was really wasn't an asterisk at the time there really wasn't a believe you know now what what Democrats have come to is the position regarding Tara Reid that the how we should treat an allegation depends in part upon what kind of evidence is available. That was the right right position. It was in the right position all along. That's what I think most people on the right were doing regarding the accusations of Christine Blasey Ford against Brett Kavanaugh. But you know, I'm sure there's some folks who are probably reflexive about it. If you want a fantastic example of what you should do regarding accusations like this, my colleague Dan McLaughlin has a roughly 6,000 word piece entitled what you need to know about Tara Reid's credibility. And for everybody who, you know, like, um, you know, this, this basically looks at all of the aspects of her story, all of the pieces of evidence that she has cited, all of the pieces of counter evidence that people who uh, are supporters of, of Joe Biden have, have said, um, this is something of a, his word against hers. Obviously we don't have any video evidence. We don't have any, um, uh, you know, physical evidence or, or, or things like that. Um, that, that ultimately this is, you know, she has said this to several people over the course of her life. Um, and many people have pointed out that, hmm, you know, Joe Biden does have this habit of, uh, touching people in ways that can make them uncomfortable, even if it's not this quite the same thing as sexual assault. Um, now I'm just going to leave you the conclusion. you Dan McLaughlin is honest enough to say that after this exhaustive thing, he can't give a clear answer. He says his default assumption in cases like this one is to ask whether it's possible the truth lies somewhere in between. And that may be the case here that Reed really was sexually harassed or made to feel sexually uncomfortable by Joe Biden. And that over the years that turned into something bigger, um, partially for gain sympathy, partially to cover embarrassment of being demoted and shoved out the door. Uh, But he points out, based on the number of people she told in the 90s, it's not likely this is a story she made up in in 2020. And there's no reason to think that she's doing this because she's some Russian plant or any of these other crazy ideas that are out there. And as he points out, the burden of proof is not on the accused. And so as long as there's not, there's simply too many rough edges and too many questions to come away convinced that Reid's story is true. Joe Biden gets the benefit of the doubt that he would deny to others. I know a lot of listeners out there are like, well, wait a second, wait a second. (laughs) If Joe Biden denies it to others, why should he get it? That's a very fair question. But I guess the question is, what standard do we want applied? Um, the fact that the left was wrong in the case of Brett Kavanaugh, I don't think it means we necessarily want to embrace all of their ideas and their philosophy on this towards, uh, towards Joe Biden. You know, follow the evidence is one and recognize there are going to be circumstances in which the evidence is not going to be conclusive one way or the other. Uh, but this idea that, oh, feminists never said this kind of stuff, this New York Times op-ed suggests, is simply cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, spectacularly disingenuous, and the sort of thing we need less of in our politics.
1: Jim, that is absolutely the mature way to go. Uh, due process on either side is exactly what uh, should be expected and should be afforded to everyone. That's kind of how our, our system is set up, whether it's in a formal legal process or not. Uh, kudos to Dan McLaughlin for doing that, because uh, one of the things that we've seen here, whether it's judicial nominations ever since Bork or uh, other things, is that uh, often, you well, they did it to our guy, so we're going to do it to your guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think conservatives would probably have a pretty strong argument that uh, the left does it more than the right, given that uh, Ginsburg and Breyer coasted through and so did Sotomayor and Kagan and so forth. But uh, that doesn't mean that scorched earth and no due process is the way to go. So uh, as ugly as it is to endure that sometimes, uh, repeating their tactics is not the right thing to do. I was going to say fighting fire with fire is
0: usually meant as a way to get the other side to stop using fire. If you fight fire with fire and they never learn the lesson, do you want to keep using fire or have you just normalized fire? You know what happens at that point, uh, At that point, Greg? Some men just want to see the world burn.
1: <laughs> I think it does pay to fight fire with fire when you're actually defending someone against uh, either scurrilous accusations or accusations with no basis in actual evidence. In other words, how the right responded to the accusations against Brett Kavanaugh, but just uh, lining up behind uh, anything that uh, makes the other side look bad is, is not a good way to go long-term. Jim, congratulations on being inside again. <laughs> we'll see where you are tomorrow. You know, I think the repairman might be trapped under something heavy. i better go get him, so. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks again to our sponsor of Tommy John. Remember that Memorial Day sale, you get up to 30% off site-wide, tommyjohn.com with the code martini tommyjohn.com please subscribe to the podcast leave us a kind review get us on those home devices just say play three martini lunch podcast and most of all join us on wednesday for the next three martini lunch